Hello and welcome to the Pall Mall Doughboys podcast, a War One history podcast keeping alive what is often called the Forgotten War. Coming to you from Sergeant Alvin C. York State Historic Park in Pall Mall, Tennessee, on the banks of the Wolf River. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host today, Park Manager Nate Dotson. Make your daddy glad to have had such a lad. Uh, All right, everybody, welcome to the Pal Mal Doughboys podcast. We are sitting here in uh, Fort Oglethorpe at the History Company. So the Pal Mal Doughboys are uh, are on the road. We're on the go. Uh, we're sitting here with uh, Lou Varnell. Uh, how you doing, Lou? I'm doing just fine. Very good. Hey, appreciate you uh, doing this with us and sitting down for a minute and chatting. Uh, and we also are, uh, on a, as a side note, we're on a shopping trip too, so getting a few things from the store while we're here. Yeah, we're your one-stop history shop. That's right, that's right. Uh, and we've got uh, Ranger Tanner Wells with us as well. He is, uh, he, he's sitting on a very uncomfortable seat, but I think he's going to make it through. I, I hope so. <laughs> okay. There's a will, there's a way. That's yeah. Right. Well, uh, Lou, yeah, we've been wanting to sit down and chat with you basically ever since we got the podcast started, because uh, you've been, you've been uh, at the park doing the events since day one, basically. Um, yeah, pretty much. Even, even before we started doing, because uh, Robin Peeler was the manager okay. when I first started doing programs. Okay, so the, the OG Pal Mal Dover yeah. here. Yeah. So that's awesome. Um, well, I guess just to get started, and I feel like this might lead to our other some of the other topics we were wanting to ask you about, uh, how did you get into reenacting in the first place? What was the sort of story there, and, and what did it lead you to? So the... Um, the very first, I didn't really even know reenacting was a thing uh, because I grew up in Sail Creek, Tennessee, uh, which is uh, an area not noted for its large reenactor presence. And so uh, what ended up happening, I was attending UTC, you know, University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, and I worked on the school paper. I was the features editor. And we were in desperate need of a center spread for the, uh, for the edition. And a, one of the ladies that I was in art school with told me that her husband did Civil War reenacting. And so she arranged for me to fall in with them. Uh, it was the 130th anniversary of the Battle of Murfreesboro. Okay. Uh, I had zero equipment for this. So when I showed up, uh, they sent me into a tent and put me uh, put me in a great coat and a pair of sky blue britches that belonged to a guy that was three times larger than I was. Uh-huh. A kepi that you could probably, there was an inch of space around that thing around my head. And I had my work boots that I dyed black. So Mr. Authentic Guy right there for my first one. But I went out there and I I did the fight and it was really cool. And I thought, man, this is is pretty awesome. I could do this again. And then so what, uh, of course, we did the story on it. Uh, Then the other weird part, I guess, of that, the guy who had the, uh, the cannon that I'd served on did a touring Civil War show. And it was uh, the Great Civil War Exposition. Okay. And so the guy who had worked with him, they, they had a federal and a Confederate guy. Uh, the Confederate guy had slipped on his hobnailed shoes on a tile floor Classic. and had broken his hip. Oh, my gosh. And so this guy had a job. Uh, we were It was out in Kansas. And so the wife contacted me again and said, hey, 
how would you like to make some extra money? And I said, I am a poor college student. I am up for this. Yes. Let's go. So I, we got a uniform thrown together for me, and I spent the next, I don't know, two, three weeks on the road in Kansas and uh, in Colorado okay. doing this touring Civil War show. And did that for, I don't know, maybe three years or so. Okay. And I knew nothing about Civil War at all. It was not my thing. World War One and Two was really what I was into. Yeah. Uh, and we got, uh, we did radio interviews, of course, every town we went to, and mm -hmm. somebody would call in and ask a question, and I'm sitting there like, uh, I, I don't know, you know, maybe you should answer that question, you know, because the guy was with me. Started reading books, started improving my impression. Next thing you know, here we are 30 years later, still reenacting. Yeah, yeah. So basically, Civil War was kind of your intro into it. Civil War was the gateway drug, as yeah. it is for so many of us that uh, that start out in this area as reenactors. Right. Well, it seems like, too, this is something we had talked with the previous, uh, previous show guest, Gavin Abbott. He said... Uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of World War One reenactors uh, there for a long time. I guess building up to that centennial uh, 2018 year, you start getting a lot more. Is that kind of what happened with you, or were you doing it even well so before? So I was, I was doing it before then, but I was doing it as a school teacher. Okay. So I had put together a uniform when I was teaching 5th, 6th, and 7th grade, and, and so, you know, any excuse to wear weird clothes— so when I taught my World War One unit, I'd put together a World War One uniform, okay. and I had done a few school programs outside of my own school, uh, but primarily, yeah, Civil War reenacting was it. There, you know, unless you were doing F and I at Fort Loudon, yeah, the only other things in our area tended to be Civil War. Right. And I think what happened though with the growth of World War One is you had a lot of guys who had done Civil War for a long time and were just kind of burned out and wanting something new. And here's a centennial, so let's start gearing up. This would be different. Right. Um, and we're seeing that now with the 250th anniversary of the Revolutionary yeah, War approaching. I mean, there are guys forming units for that. Right, yeah. I guess it's just kind of, yeah, timeline-wise, where it's going to fall. After our centennial year, 2018, you know, we're still... Uh, telling the World War One story at our site and you know guys like you come up there and help us out with that and uh, we have we've seen a little bit of a decline I feel like but but for the most part we've kept our group of guys pretty strong uh, up at York here so I, I would definitely say so we've got a good group there I mean I'm I still go out to schools and do World War One mm -hmm. in fact I was in Gainesville Georgia recently and we had about 309 people or so yeah. come through our uh, World War One display but the, you know, my experience in Civil War is it's kind of on five-year cycles. So, you know, we had the centennial, that's the hundredth, everybody pushed for that. It'll decline a little bit when you hit the 105th, mm. there's another good anniversary. And we see that with Civil War. The 150th, Chickamauga is a big event. The 151st, eh, not so much. Right. You know, but 155th would be back up and 160th like we right. just saw here. Yeah. Um, I guess going back to your... Uh... World War One reenacting, you have a pretty cool uh, tie to World War One with your own family story. Yeah, so when I was a when I was a kid, and you know, like a real small kid, um, my dad, who had been a World War Two Marine, told me that his father had been a World War One Marine, and I was absolutely fascinated by this. And so the uh, you know I started studying World War One and Two. Those, like I said, were my primary interests. 
And as I have gotten older and more research has come out, I've gotten a lot more of my grandfather's story. Mm-hmm. And that is usually, um, even with the play that I do at the uh, with the Chattanooga Theater Center, I'm basically just portraying my grandfather's unit right. uh, for that. Okay. And that, but that's what led me down the path, you know, was yeah. Granddaddy. Yeah, where I guess uh, what original materials did you have of his? That sort of that you started building a little bit of a collection on him, letters or anything. So the the only original items that we have from my grandfather, um, a, there was an envelope of photographs that I found in a drawer that. Uh, a drawer I was not supposed to be digging around nice. in, you know, but I've, I found the photos. And so I got those. Uh, we have a napkin ring that says Verdun on it that was made out of an artillery shell. And I have a clip of 30-06 rounds that are dated 1918 that he apparently brought home from the war. Uh, the only other thing we have is, and you'll, you know, y'all have seen this when I've brought it to York. The forty-five automatic that mm-hmm. I'll carry yeah. periodically was the one that my grandfather carried at Bellow Wood. So cool. Yeah. So, so cool. that's probably the coolest thing that that I could have had anyway. Right. Right. What uh, other engagements was he in besides Bellow Wood? So, um, Granddaddy joins about two weeks after war is declared, mm-hmm. and so he goes over in that first draft of Marines that go to France. So, when those guys first get there, the Army was not even going to put them into combat. They were just using them to guard the docks and things like that, and they had to really push to get into line. Uh, when that German push started, the Marines, along with all the, the Army guys that were in country at that point, are pushed forward. And so, from that time on they're they're fighting in smaller engagements um hill 142 uh, is one of the engagements just before bellow wood so he had seen a decent amount of action up until june 6 1918 and he fights for about two weeks during the fighting at bellow wood and the germans launched a massive mustard gas concentration into the woods um, to drive the marines out and looking at the muster roll for my grandfather's company just a few days after that just about every single man is listed as gassed, either gassed yeah. in hospital, gassed, returned to duty. I think there might have been two guys yeah. who, who didn't get gassed. So for him, his war ended there. Um, you know, he was too badly gassed to continue. So he saw action pretty much in that first span up through the, the fighting in June of 18. Okay, okay. Do you know, like, from your dad, did he have any long-term health Oh yeah, that? I mean, yeah. Um, he had to sleep sitting partially up wow. uh, the rest of his life because his lungs would congest. Uh, he developed heart problems, which is ultimately what killed him. Mm-hmm. He uh, he died nine months before I was born. Uh, he he died in 1968, and I came along there in '69. And so, uh, but yeah, he had lifelong health issues from his experiences, but. My grandfather, according to everything my dad ever told me, incredibly proud of being a U.S. Marine, incredibly proud of having fought at Bellow Wood. And when World War II began, uh, my father joined the Marine Corps at the suggestion of a judge, and uh, my grandfather tried to re-enlist with him. Okay. And he was ready to go again, but they, again. they wouldn't take him. So, but, but Granddaddy, still wanting to serve and being really patriotic, yeah. uh, joined the Tennessee State Guard that's, and served in that throughout World War II. Yeah, man, that's awesome. Yeah, um, you've had uh, your display at, at, at uh, Veterans Day each year. I feel like you know, you're always able to talk about your grandfather's story. And, and then your father as well, Marine Corps, World War II, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, any cool stories from him that you 
they, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there, there are a lot of good stories from my dad. I mean, it, and for the most part, and, and oddly, I just did a World War II program on my dad yesterday. Uh, and so I, I tend to tell a lot of the funny stories that dad told. He really only talked about the night he was wounded one time in any detail. Uh, so he had all sorts of stories, though, about bar fights with sailors, you know, being drunk and this, that, and the other, and I, the typical Marine Corps right. behavior. Uh, and so the uh, I, probably one of his funnier combat stories was he was in a, uh, in a fighting position, and it was pitch black night in the jungle, and he kept hearing noises outside the hole. And he, he became convinced, as anyone would, that the entire Japanese army was probably moving around out there in the jungle. And he ended up, uh, you know, you don't fire your rifle at night because the muzzle flash gives away your position. So at night, you tend to throw grenades. Okay. So he cuts loose with a grenade right into a palm tree that was about five feet in front of his hole, and it bounced back in his oh. lap. Uh, so you've only got, you know, five seconds on that grenade. And Dad said he did a backflip out of that hole and, and probably low crawled 100 yards Faster away than he'd before, ever done before it went off. But, yeah, it blew up all of his stuff in the holes there for a few days. He was oh trying to gosh. piece back, you know, his, his equipment and everything. Yeah. But, yeah, he had some good stories like that. There's, a, there's one that he told. They got caught in an air raid, and one of his buddies, a guy named Quinlan, got caught out in the open and could not get to his to his dugout bunker. And the closest trench nearby was the latrine trench, oh my God. which he dove headfirst into. Yeah, and my well. dad couldn't tell that story without just cracking up laughing. And so after everything was over and Quinlan gets himself up <laughs> out of the hole, uh, you know, my dad said, you know, Quinlan didn't smell too good. And he said, of course, I don't guess any of us smelled that good at that time. But yeah. for apparently for the rest of that guy's life, he was known as Foxhole Quinlan. <laughs> so <laughs> that's awesome. Man, what a uh, yeah. What an experience they uh, they had, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dad said if you ever saw him between two military policemen with his feet two feet off the ground, you'd know he'd volunteered again. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's uh there's another cool thing that you mentioned uh, just so briefly there, um, but you do these really cool presentations at, at schools, a World War One presentation with a whole sort of trench set up behind you and stuff. Um, can you tell us about that? And then also, I guess you did a, a film at the park one time. Yeah. Uh, this was a few years back. Uh, the Not So Great War, is yeah. that your title for your presentation at the schools? Uh, so the, the school presentation is a little bit different than the play because it you know there's so much more production going on with the play. Right. So when I go to the schools, it tends to be more lecture format, but I, there are a lot of the same elements that are in there. And both the play and my program at school uh, pretty much piggybacked off what I did when I was teaching sixth grade. So, you know, I just took what I had done for my lesson plans and pulled that into how do I make a program out of this. Um, the, and the trench that we built, basically as we were rolling into the centennial and we were trying to figure out, okay, how do we interpret World War One? Because yeah. we're going to have all these opportunities. Well, World War One's about trench warfare. And without an example of a trench, right. you're just a dude kind of standing around. Yeah. And so I figured out I had a lot of scrap wood and some old tin and built about a, I think it's about 20 foot by yeah, the time we section. have everything set up, probably about a 20 foot trench wall with a fire step. And we can, you know, people can come up and see us and we can explain how a trench would work. Yeah. And so that's how that all came to be. 
And then, uh, thankfully, you guys got a trench, so I didn't have to haul it up to York, right? You know, and set it up. It's come in handy at other locations mm-hmm. which do not have large entrenchments Bi-mall behind them. Was a good right. example. Yeah, Bymall was a good example. Yeah, the uh, so Lou made a video at York. It's the not so great war. He, he filmed it in the trenches, and uh, it's it's a great overview for school age kids. What what yeah. age range? Well, were you looking probably at? I'd say fifth grade through middle school. Yeah. And and the whole deal with that, we developed that out uh, here with the Chattanooga Theater Center. So they could bring kids to us, and I just thought, well, you know, there are kids in other areas that are never going to be able to come down here, and so why don't we do a video, and then maybe we'll market it to schools or market it to historic sites and things like that, and got permission to use the York site. You know, a few few guys came up and filmed with us, you know, background guys in the, in the back, and mm-hmm. Stan Kobe, who is, of course, one of our volunteers, right. uh, Stan came up and portrayed the extremely grumpy army officer. Oh. Uh, Kowalski. Which, yeah, which, well, now Kowalski is, is the, the really dumb guy that's a oh, machine okay. gunner, which true. for purposes of the movie ended up being portrayed by Joe Gamble's dad, Tim. <laughs> that's right, that's uh, right. So yeah, Tim told everybody was he was Kowalski. Yeah. And, uh, and <laughs> now the, the irony is I know a guy named Kowalski okay. uh, who's a friend of mine. who And that's where I was like, what can I call this, you know, the really dumb guy? Ah, Kowalski. <laughs> and so he... Uh, yeah, he talked to me about that. He's like, really, man? Yeah. I don't like any other name you could pick for that guy. Yeah. So yeah, it just flowed off the tongue. I so. just uh, I just watched that film the other day, actually, a few couple weeks ago, and uh, there is the shot of Joseph Gamble stepping out in his early uh, early war French kit. Yeah. And he's the only thing in color. Was that, uh, was it, what was the uh, <laughs> So name? So here's the reason that that, that uh, film is done in black and white. I wish I could say were these great artistic reasons. We're trying to harken back to the, to the silent movie era. Um, it's not that at all. Uh, you know, when you're filming, you would like to have a lightly overcast day. Right. And of course, the day that we're filming at York, it is as bright as it can be. <laughs> yeah. And the sun is bouncing off of all that tin and everything yeah. in there. It's Tanner just... can attest to how uh, it creates an oven effect. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it's I a mean, convection oven it was, there. It was killing rough. us. And in fact, if you really watch, you'll notice that a lot of the times my eyes are squinted so yeah. closed. As I can't see. I had no idea what we were doing. And so when we, when we watched it, you know, when we put it together... It was horrible looking in color. It was so washed out. And it's like, how do we salvage this? And I finally said, look, can you put this thing in black and white? Let's just see if this fixes it. And all of a sudden there it was. Like, oh, great. But of course, then you lose the entire point of Joe being in the French uniform because I specifically say that they send their troops into battle in dark blue coats and bright red Red pants pants. and little hats. Yeah. And now he's in black and white. Right. So the the poor guy who worked on that with me had to digitally go in and colorize Gamble and, and told me that was the most annoying thing and it was funny he said i have tried to work around that guy's nose for hours trying to fix this <laughs> so, he knows gamble's nose better yes than he knows no joe's nose better than joe knows joe's nose <laughs> oh classic uh no that's a great it's a great resource it talks about you know uh, how the war uh, or why the war got started and all this like broke it down um in a very easily understandable way 
Um, yeah, and that was the point. I mean, the, the reason I started doing so much living history type things as a teacher, and I also did a lot of projects, I taught in an area that was kind of a lower socioeconomic area, and the the education level, the literary levels weren't necessarily where you wanted them to be. Mm-hmm. And so to try to, to get this through to the kids who were great learners, they just weren't necessarily all great book learners. But if we would do something that was hands-on or something they could see, it tended to stick better. Yeah. And so that's why I was I was doing that. And you know, for World War One, of course, that's worked out really well. The the kids, however, the program that still even in their thirties that they all will still talk about uh, was when I was dressed as Anubis, god of the dead, and <laughs> was that's wearing really- my college graduation robe with a gold lame headdress, and built a mummy. Uh, we had a set of army coveralls, got a mummy mask, uh, put a cantaloupe half and cauliflower for a skull up inside the mask. The kids had to pull the cauliflower chunks out. And then we had a pumpkin for the chest cavity, and they had to disembowel it, you know, the ritual yes. disembowelment. And so um, you, you should see the looks on a, on a kid's face when he puts his hand in this pumpkin into a bunch of boiled snotty okra and pulls out a red bell pepper representing the heart. You know, and then we would wrap him up, and he was yes. King Rootin' Tootin' Common, you know, and we would march him off and put him in the sarcophagus. You have to engage so. all the senses. Yeah, yeah, but that's the one. That, it's probably actually the project most of them are still in therapy over. That's probably why they remember it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was that. It's not that it was great teaching. It was trauma. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I think, like, there's elements of what you said. It's like that's the whole point of living history is that you're going to learn a lot more just by a visual representation than reading it in a book. And, you know, kids and adults alike, they're going to show up to these events where we've got running around in the funny World War One clothes, but it's going to stick in their minds that much better um, than, than anything else. So. It makes well, it tangible. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, and that's it. It does make it tangible. Yeah, I mean, we can, we can read about it, but if you can see it and you can, in some cases, pick up that artifact and really handle it and see what it felt like or how heavy it was or something like that, that does stick with you more. And I know, like with us, with this living history program we just did on World War One, the one I did yesterday on World War Two, the thing that I always try to impart on people, especially kids, because you, know, you are trying to get them when they're younger, is that history, you know, inside that word history is the word story. And that is really the important part. Everybody likes stories. You know, we like stories when we're little kids, but as we get into school and now history is graded and tested and, and you've got this one set of things that are the standard and this is all you really need to learn. A lot of people lose interest in it. And I think that the living history community, you know, historic sites like y'all and some of the other ones that we all go and work at really help bring that that love of history and that story back to people who might have lost it years right. before. Yeah. It's like, you know, you can study about the the dates and the number of men involved in a battle and and the generals and all the stuff, but the personal stories are what what are going to, you know, it, it stand out. It, to it brings it home. Yeah. And and it's it's living history is that bridge connecting people with from the present to the past and vice versa. And cuz there's a lot of people that they're they don't care about it because they're disconnected from it. Um, and the stories are what connects them to the past, especially the personal stories that that they can resonate with or they can relate to um, have a huge impact on that. Yeah. And I think presentations like you've done and that we've tried to accomplish at the park has, has done a good job at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's and that's the thing. You want to engage them. Mm-hmm. And 
just, you know, unfortunately, when I stood in front of my classroom in my khakis and, you know, my, my little blue button-down shirt with my tie, that's not nearly as interesting as when I come in dressed in all my World War One stuff and throw on a gas mask. Right. Absolutely. Um, there was, there's so much to talk to you about, Lou. I know we were talking about this earlier on the way here. It's like, I don't know if we'll fit it all in, but we'll, we'll touch on everything. And if we need to expound upon it later, we can. Um, but one cool thing that you've brought up in different, uh, I guess, a different series of, of completion is your machine gun cart. Yeah. Uh, can you tell yeah. us about that project and how that all got going? So, you know, reenacting is such a weird hobby because all it takes sometimes is one object and suddenly you have to build an entire impression around it. <laughs> uh, I say that here at the store all the time. You know, like with people that buy firearms, if you buy an old military gun, Gotta then the you got to get the bayonet, yeah, yeah. or you've got to get the holster, yeah, get and then if you get that, hat. you need the belt, yeah. and then, well, I might as well go ahead and get the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And so, for me, um, what, it, what it started all of this was, I had always wanted, probably from reading Sergeant Rock comic books years ago, but I always thought that the thirty caliber water-cooled machine gun was the most awesome thing on the planet. And of course, like, where am I going to find one of those? And then a company started making semi-automatic ones. I'm like, oh, awesome. Then I looked at the price, and I was like, that is not nearly as awesome as I was hoping it would be. Um, But through some some very fortunate events, um, a guy donated a tripod and a cradle to me who knew I did education programs. And then someone else was getting rid of their weapon and, and everything that came with it. And so I was able to work a deal to just get the things I needed. And it, it made it affordable. Plus, I think I just sold a Model T or something. Maybe that's, maybe that's when I sold that one to Joseph. But, <laughs> oh, but that's... Oh, okay, uh, well, we got to talk about that. But that's, I can't remember if that's how I got the money for that thing or not, but it was probably around that same time. So I got it, and, you know, it was cool. And then I thought, you know what would be really cool? A machine gun cart. How am I going to get a machine gun cart? And so I started looking, and these things are not available. It's not like you can go to Walmart and get a machine gun cart. But Hop some, on Amazon. Well, <laughs> they probably do have it there. Uh, actually, I hit. I think it was. Uh, I think it was Craigslist yeah. when I first got it. Uh, the first one I got. But a guy had it listed as a like a pony cart thing, and I'm looking. It's like mm, I don't think that's a pony cart. And so made contact with him, and he delivered it to me at York in yes, 2018. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, because I sat in the yard and disassembled the cargo box part of it yeah. and then didn't have room to haul that off. I was like, oh, what am I going to do? I'm not sure how, how my park ranger buddies are going to appreciate me leaving this lumber pile here. <laughs> and thankfully, one of the one of the locals came over and he said, boy, I sure could use that box for my wagon. I'm like, let's load her up. All right. You know, get this out of the yard. Wheeling but, and dealing. But we started, you know, trying to figure out the restoration. And I there was a lot that had to be done with it. And actually, the card I got from y'all, uh, got up there with y'all in 2018, is the second cart that I did. Because while I was working on it and trying to figure it out, another one popped up on Facebook Marketplace. And it was complete, but the, there was a lot of wood damage. Mm-hmm. So I bought that one because now I have a pattern. And right. so I restored, yeah, I restored it and then realized, well, wait, you know, I don't need two machine gun carts. I need a machine gun cart and an ammo cart. Um, so the one that, that I picked up at York was actually the ammunition cart okay. that goes with the other one. That was a bit more of a restoration than the first one because we had nothing to go with. I found a few photos online 
and had to get a blacksmith involved to make everything. It it was a process. Yeah. But uh, but they you know they turned out they looked pretty good sitting there together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now now I have to find one more chassis. Oh, okay. Because in a machine gun section there is the spare gun cart. Oh. <laughs> so it's the same chassis and it has two boxes for you know two guns and two tripods. And I've I've pointed out to Renee you know my wife that if I get the spare gun cart. I will, of course, have to try to find two spare guns <laughs> yes. to go in it. Uh, she's not sold on that yet. But you just keep building until you have an entire machine gun battalion. Pretty much, pretty much. Yeah, that's what we're going for. Uh, but so the way those would work, would they uh, like limber up together in a, a series and so be pulled together? Each one of them is pulled by a mule. Okay. And okay. so the the way those are set up is pretty pretty interesting, actually. The uh, the handles that are on them, if they're extended out, uh, you use when you put the mule in and you run the harness and everything yeah. through it. Uh, it's got a single tree back on the main body. But if you just are moving it by hand, that main handle spar will fold back over itself and then you can run a handle through oh, and you can use it as, as almost like a push cart. You know, two yeah. men can move it pretty much by themselves. Okay. So it's, uh, but they would be in line, and really the gun cart and the ammo cart are the two that are that are going to be moving forward. But you only go so far with those things. You know, the British used carts extensively for their machine gunners, but they would go only to a certain point, and then all that has to dismount off the cart, and you actually have to carry it by hand okay. once you're getting up into the firing zone. Yeah, okay. Um yeah, that's uh, it's been a pretty cool project to see. In you know, like I say, I think you came up with one, and then here you come up with another one. So it's, yep. every time you come up, you've got a new. And and uh, the thing cart. was, when the first one, when I was trying to figure out how to build a machine gun cart, and I'm just looking at photos, I'm kind of eyeballing it and guesstimating. Yeah. Well, then I build all of that stuff, and then I buy the one that's got all the parts and realize that all my measurements are wrong, and everything is done. I had to take the entire thing apart. Um, I'm not going to say that there wasn't some irritation involved with that. You refused to be a farb. I refused to be a farb and went back in there and fixed everything. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Well, actually, you mentioned, so you sold the, uh, the truck to mm-hmm. Joseph Campbell, Model T. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in talks right now. It's, it's it's not a for sure thing, but it's actually sitting at the State Museum. So Joseph sold it to the Tennessee State Museum. It sat there in a permanent storage, basically, for a few years since he uh, sold it to him. And we are in talks uh, getting the truck back to the park. Oh, that would be awesome. So um, it's it's not a it's not a, pot, a for sure thing yet, but we are working on getting that truck back. So where did you get it? I guess so. <laughs> trace okay, it back yeah, and, and yet back. yet another one of these things. So I I'm trying to think. You did some work on it. Too. I no, I did a lot of work yeah. on it. So I got. Let me see. How did all that work out? Because there were a bunch of vehicle swaps going on at the time. Because again, in addition to you know, the, the living history stuff, I'm kind of into military vehicles. And so I think on that Model T, it came from Kentucky. Okay. So, yeah, because I'd had another one before that, but it was like a, a 26 or, or something. And I sold it to a guy down below Orlando. So I had to drive all the way down below Orlando, 
got that, then picked up an army jeep, brought the army jeep back up here, sold the army jeep to someone, used that money to buy the Model T <laughs> at around Fort Knox, Kentucky. Okay. okay. And it was set up as a sea cab, little cargo truck with little cute rails on the back yeah. and everything. And I immediately brought it back here and stripped all of that off. Yeah. And using photographs uh, of the only truck that the United States Marine Corps had apparently in World War One. Uh, the 6th Marine uh, Regiment had a truck okay. that was uh, donated to them by some people who had raised money. And so, I, mine's not exactly, well, mine, you know, the state's now, but when I was building it, I was, I was trying to copy that as much okay. as I could. And it was really cool, and I, I liked it, but I don't remember exactly why I sold it to Joseph, but I think there was something else that I wanted, and, and it could yeah. have been the 30 cal. Uh, and so, yeah, Joseph got it. It's just and uh, passing hands all around, but it, it, hopefully, it was. hopefully it'll end up back at the park and yeah. be usable. Now, our big thing is we have to learn how to drive a Model T. So well, thank goodness for Sam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's our next uh, step or goal. But anyway, so that's pretty cool. I didn't actually know that that was originally had been yours. So. Oh, yeah. I, I actually have the pictures of it when we started the restoration. Okay. And so, uh, in fact, I think I sent them to Joseph because he was supposed to send them along with it to the state. Okay. So it showed me stripping it, painting it, building everything up. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, like I say, it was a neat truck and it showed well and people really liked it. But I, I kind of got on that machine gun cart thing and it's like, well, you know, I can have this truck or the machine gun carts, but I can't haul them all at the same time. Right, so. right. That makes sense. Yeah, um, so yeah, we're, we're looking forward to if that actually is a possibility, but uh, we'll we'll let you take it for a spin and come out <laughs> to the park. How about that? It'll probably remember me, and it's probably still angry It'll that I sold it. immediately. So, yeah. you know. uh, well, betrayal. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, well, cool. Well, that's awesome, Lou. Uh, I guess the last, I mean, there's, there's other things to talk about for sure, but... We are sitting right now in uh, a really amazing uh, military museum inside of the History Company, uh, which is a store owned by yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us the story of the History Company, how you got it going, and and you know just uh, the background behind the amazing how place. all of this happened? Yes. Um, so the the whole thing with the History Company. I mean, like all of us, you know, I'd sold stuff out of the trunk of the car and and swapped stuff around to my buddies. Um, my mother and father, who were older when they had me, had developed some health issues. And so, and we still had a farm. We had a pick your own blueberry farm up in Sail Creek. And so, my dad was not going to accept the fact that he could not still run that farm like he wanted to. So, Renee and I talked and, and we made the decision that I would leave teaching and I would kind of be there to take care of mom and dad. She, uh, and part of that is because she had been in this system a lot longer than I had. You know, when we got married, I'd only worked for two years in, in Walker County. And so, it, you know, it made sense for it to be me and they were my parents. So, I'm sitting around though and I'm not doing anything and I don't know how it is for everyone but for me especially with the way my dad had brought me up you know a man's supposed to have a job he's supposed to be doing something not just sitting around the house and so I was really feeling sorry for myself and thought you know I got to do something what do I know about other than teaching school well you know old army stuff and reenacting so we, we took a chance and we bought a 750-square-foot cabin at the south end of Chickamauga Battlefield, which is the worst location we oh, could have picked okay. because no one ever sees it. Uh -huh. you yeah. know? Uh, I don't know how we survived initially, 
but we uh, we renovated that building and we started the business up uh, in um, July of 2010. So this will be 14 years wow. this year uh, on a business that I did not expect <laughs> to make it, to be quite honest. But we uh, we got the business going, and I mean, if I had five keppies and two shell jackets out there for sale, I thought we were right. rocking. Um, well, mom and dad, you know, subsequently passed away. Uh, the economy was in a bit of a recession. The school system was not hiring uh, at that point. Part of the part of the reason for me not getting hired back was because I had a master's degree and ten years experience. And they could hire a brand new teacher out of a teacher education program for far less. Mm-hmm. And so in that economy, I understood it. Kind of, you know, wasn't great for me, but I understood why they did it. Um, we had the chance to buy the building that we're in currently, and we discussed it and thought, well, it's an investment. You know, we'll renovate it. We'll rent it out to somebody. We'll run the business in there for a while. And the doggone thing took off. Uh, once we got up here on the front side of the battlefield where we had more traffic. Um, it grew. And th- this was, our building is an old McDonald's, uh, okay. which in its own right here in Fort Oglethorpe is apparently a historic landmark because this was the first fast food restaurant to ever be here in this town. Wow. And so, awesome. you know, people come in all the time and tell me how this was their first job and things like that. <laughs> gotcha. And somebody will always come in, hey, can I get a Big Mac? Oh, yes, sir. That was funny the first 10,000 times. Yeah. But, you know, I'll laugh just to be a nice guy. Um, but we, we got in here. And, of course, once you get a location, people just start showing up. And so I went from thinking, oh, we'll never fill this place up to, oh, we have got to add on to this building. And so we put in another addition and I think we're at 2,500 square feet or so yeah. with, uh, you know, as Charlie Road Armor puts it, military goodness. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And, <laughs> but, the ceiling. But yeah. part of my, you know, part of my thing, you know, the passion for the stories was the museum side of things. And I'd worked at a couple of museums and really enjoyed it. And I thought, well, I've got a pretty good collection. And so be- before the history company existed, the Chattanooga Ducks hired me to paint a D-Day mural on their wall. Uh And so I did this big mural of the entire invasion force, and I did three life-size World War II soldiers standing there. And the guy that that was running the place said, man, it'd be great if we had some original things to put out. And I said, you give me Uh enough space, I'll do you a museum. And that's how the museum part got going. We were a museum before the history company ever existed. Okay. And, uh, you know, we had that. It grew. We ended up, they lost that building. We bought a bus. And I had the museum on a bus for the longest time Traveling taking it to museum. events. Nice. You know, and it was the uh, the battle bus yeah. is what we called nice. it. And I'd drive that everywhere. But when we finally got the building, we had the room. I wanted to build a museum. And so, uh, you know, we started showcasing a lot of the items we've gotten. And I'd say we're probably 85% local and regional veteran in terms of our artifacts, 15% stuff that I just thought was a really good story. Yeah. And people still bring things in. Of course, a lot of times they bring it into the store to sell it. Mm-hmm. And then if I, you know, I'll always ask them, well, is this local? Is this, you know, is, do you have a story on this? And a lot of times if we can do some research and put a face and a story to it, it goes in to the museum, yeah, um, which is why I am a terrible businessman because some <laughs> of the probably some yeah. of the best stuff that's come in here is just like, oh no, we've got to keep this. Well, yeah, so. well, you're a historian too, so you don't want to see it just go no. to the four winds, no. Or whatever, uh, so. And and we've actually got a few things going on here, museum wise. We have we have always been just kind of a standalone as part of the business and. 
Um, I was approached uh, here a while back by someone who would like to donate money to the museum and, of course, wanted to know if we were a nonprofit. And I said, no, we are an autonomous dictatorship is what we are. Uh, but after talking it over with some other people, I think we are going to start making some strides towards forming a 501 yeah. and making the museum a nonprofit and developing a board so that, you know, one of these days, uh, hopefully no time soon, but one of these days, I won't be able to run this. And so I'd like to see the collection continue on right. past me. Right. Because uh, what you don't want is for it to be your collection and you've worked so hard curating it and then something happens to you and there's a yard sale. Yeah. And everything just gets scattered to the winds. Right, yeah. right. Well, yeah, the museum itself, I mean, you're going from, uh, is it, like Civil War to we we do Civil War through Afghanistan. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so you can kind of make your way around the room, and it just moves in. Uh, yep. Kind of flows, sequence. and cool. and of course we've it's spilled outside of the museum area out into the into the store <laughs> itself. So we've got exhibits out there, and then we we're about to add about six more cases, uh, and so there there are a lot of a lot of exciting things possibly on the horizon for the museum. Yeah. And we're we've started doing some educational programming here on site. So for Memorial Day weekend for us, the Saturday of Memorial Day weekend, we always do a big military timeline. And I'll have Revolutionary War all the way up out in the parking lot. Sam brought his Model T. Yeah. You know, we bring in Jeeps and all sorts of stuff out here. Cool. So yeah, good program. Yeah, you guys uh, are are really doing it. Um, you know, beyond just the events that you come to at York, I feel like you're always, you know, every month you've probably got an event or two to, to be at. I'm doing something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it feels like all the time. I mean, and just in this last, you know, two-week span, I've done World War One, World War Two, and I've got a Civil War program coming up. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a potential for a Span Am program floating around. Yeah. So. Well, I know uh, I'll pitch our, our own event coming up, I guess, since we're talking about events. Um, we've got the Great War Expo coming up on April 6th at Sergeant Alvin C. York State Park. And I remember when I was looking at doing that event, I, I actually called you first of anybody because I was like, if we can get Lou there, <laughs> then then everybody else will come. Uh, so it was like, hey, Lou, can you bring the machine gun carts? Can you bring some cool stuff? Like... Uh, and I remember you saying it's it's your daughter's birthday. It's, yes, it's Matilda's birthday. <laughs> so he is he is uh, choosing to come to the park. Uh, hopefully Matilda doesn't take that too personally. Um, but uh, but yeah, April sixth at uh, Sergeant York State Park, we're doing the Great War Expo. Collectors, museums, uh, authors, lecturers. We're doing a, sort of a big educational uh, War One event that's all encompassing. It's not exactly uh, one particular part of the war, but a wide array of stories and uh you know i think just another uh way for folks that are interested in war one to network with each other too um, well and i'm i'm really looking forward to it. i mean first of all obviously the veterans day weekend that's our big program mm -hmm. but that's the only time i see some of these right, guys yeah. i mean we see each other once a year and we're all on facebook so mm -hmm. i mean we keep up with each other but I'm really looking forward to the April event just because it'll be a chance to hang out with my friends and talk World War One stuff. And, yeah. you know, it's like a, it's like you're, you're getting a hangout with a lot more history nerds like yourself. Right. You know, which is kind of, I think, what we all end up doing in some ways. Yeah. You know, Reenacting is <laughs> great for that because you're suddenly not the weird kid. It's Everyone a, is it, weird. It's a community. Yeah. And so it's like a lot of like minds. So you don't feel like 
the ostracized soul that's yeah. on the outside looking in. Well, too, and there's a lot of guys that have pretty extensive collections. You know, yeah. we were just talking to Andrew A. Snip, and he's got a weapon from every single, um, you know, power, major, major, major power in the yeah. war. And, uh, you know, where else can you display those than these various events and stuff? So we're just, we're giving those guys an opportunity to bring their stuff up and hang yeah. out with us yeah. and show it off because it's cool. And if there's one thing we love doing, it's talking about our stuff. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell people all the time that the uh, the reason that I reenact and do living history programs is to justify my collecting hobby. Yeah. Right. Because it's for the children. It is for the yeah. children. <laughs> I've, I've done that route. It's like it helps me do programs at the park. That's the, it. It's the young children and the grown-up children. Yeah. And the grown-ups. Yeah, that's right. Well, cool, Lou. That's, uh, that's all I've got. I mean, Tanner, do you have any other questions for Lou uh, I mean no, I'm just we have covered a wide array of topics here but like I say there's so much to talk about with you and I appreciate you uh, sitting down with us letting us come and no man glad to do it looking forward to April and looking forward to November and yeah. everything else and on so. beyond that well cool well thanks so much Lou and I guess we're gonna step into the shop and do a little bit more shopping and then head back <laughs> to the park so we've got a uh, we got a road trip ahead of us but uh, good opportunity to plug for your store too oh yes yes the history company located <laughs> at 2949 Lafayette Road here in Fort Oglethorpe Georgia your one stop history shop there we go. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. <laughs>